All right, we are in Acts chapter 24 today. And we're looking at the last couple of chapters in the book of Acts, which also happen to be the last couple of years that we have recorded of the life of the Apostle Paul. And um, he's come to Jerusalem. This is kind of his plan for a long time to get to Jerusalem. He kind of always wanted to get back there. And then he also had this heart for Rome, wanted to go to Rome one day, and he wrote to Romans once and said, I, I long to come to you and I hope to come to you soon. But he probably hoped to be able to go to Jerusalem and Rome under different circumstances. But as he got closer to Jerusalem, in every town along the way, they kept saying to him, hey, we're hearing from God that you're going to get imprisoned in Jerusalem, so please don't go. And they kept saying, nope, I'm going anyway. This is where God has called me to go. I'm going to do this. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but this is what I'm doing. So he went there, knowing he'd be imprisoned, and he went into the temple. The Jews recognized him, grabbed him, took him out of the temple, closed the temple doors, and started beating him, trying to kill him, until word got back to the commander, who stepped in, stopped the riot, grabbed hold of Paul, and tried to have like a civilized court case, like what is going on, why do you hate this guy so much? And it just kept being chaotic and crazy. He couldn't figure out why they didn't like him, what he'd done wrong. They were always shouting one thing and the other. And then he finds out that there's this plot happening where 40 guys have committed to like not eat or drink until they kill Paul. And they've made this plan to have the commander bring out Paul for more questioning. And they're going to beat him. So instead, the commander snakes away Paul by night to get into the governor, Felix, and let Felix handle it. So that's where we are today in Acts 24. So let's just pray and then we'll go through it together. Father, I thank you for this section of the text. I pray that you would um, take these four main things that we're going to talk about, the contrast we'll see, and help us to learn and to apply it in some way to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to be looking at four sins to avoid. And we're going to look at this, the type of sin and the contrast, the, the way God wants us to actually be instead of that. And uh, we're going to just look at nine verses. So the first verse, 24 verse 1, says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some <coughs> elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So the first thing to notice real quick is that when we ended chapter 23, um, Felix had said to Paul, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive. And so he was holding Paul, but waiting for the accusers to, to arrive. And if you were there when we talked through um, earlier in Acts, golly, where was that now? 23 verse 2, I think it was, when um, after Paul in 23 verse 1 said, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. And then the high priest struck him on the mouth or commanded someone to strike him. And I said, maybe it's because Paul spoke out of turn. Usually in a court case, the people that are accusing get to speak first, and then you give your defense after they've heard the accusation. So I thought that might be why they had struck Paul. And so that's, again, just a reminder here. We see that Felix says to Paul, I will hear you after your accusers come. 
until they take Paul away. So that's interesting. And then look, these uh, Jews, they've hired an attorney. So this is a big deal now. Um, attorneys then may have been different than now, but it's the same kind of idea. These men were specialized in knowing the law. They were trained not only to know the law, but to know how to speak publicly, to know how to present a case, to know how to hear all sides of the case, but also to know how to you know, be hired by a client to help that client win in some way. And so you have good attorneys and bad attorneys, some attorneys who just love truth and will only defend clients they believe in, and you've got bad attorneys that just want to win to get their money. So you have both sides then and now. And we see here this man, we don't know anything else about him, but his name, Tertullus. All we know is that he was an attorney. He might have been a Jew. He might have been a Greek. We don't know if this court case here was held in the Greek language or in the Hebrew language, but chances were it was in the Greek language. But here's now what this guy says, starting in verse 2. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus begins to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. So that's how he begins. Now there is a certain amount of respect that you should have when you're speaking with somebody, anybody. We should be cordial. We should be respectful. We should talk nice, not be known as rude people, right? And especially when you're talking to somebody of the law, it's important that you speak with respect. You can go on YouTube now and see what happens when you don't talk respectfully to a police officer and they feel like you might be resisting. We know what happens. And so you give respect where respect is due. They enforce the law. You just say yes, sir, and you do what they say, and you know you obey the laws of the land. There's a certain amount of respect that comes with the office. Um, we see that from Luke, for example, when Luke begins the book of the Gospel of Luke, writing to this man named Theophilus, he says to him, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus. So he calls him almost excellent Theophilus, the same way you might say your majesty to the queen or your honor to a judge. Um, there's ways of talking respectfully to those who are in authority. But I think here, Tertullus goes way above and beyond just being respectful of authority. I think he's, these aren't just pleasantries. I think he's actually lying to this person. Um, he, he talks about how grateful they are for this, this man, Felix, how these reforms are being carried out, and how they talk about him all the time and all the great things he's doing. And he's so kind, this guy, Felix. Do you think that's true? In general, based on what you've heard so far going through the book of John together and the book of Acts together, do you get the impression that the Jews like having Rome ruling over them and oppressing them? Don't you think that the reason why they were looking so intently for a Messiah was because they wanted a Messiah to set them free from this captivity of Rome? So here's how the Jews really felt about Felix, specifically, not just Rome, but Felix. You can go to jewishencyclopedia.com, so the Jews speaking here, there's an article on Felix, this guy, Antonius Felix. It says here, Felix exercised the royal prerogative in a slavish sense. 
with all manner of cruelties and excesses. It was he who excited the bitter feelings of the Jewish patriot, bitter feelings, to the highest pitch, and for this even his patron Jonathan reproached him in the end. He sent the chief priest, no, he sent the chief of the zealots, Eleazar, B. Denei, in chains to Rome, while taking relentless measures against his followers, whom he denounced as robbers, crucifying them in countless numbers. Felix acted unjustly toward the Jews. He was recalled by Nero. So he acted so badly toward the Jews that even Nero recalled him to put someone else in charge who would keep the peace. So this guy, Felix, hated the Jews, persecuted the Jews. The zealous were those among the Jews who were the most strict to the Jewish law. He was crucifying them. That's how they really felt about this Felix character. And then here, Tellus says things like, we're so grateful for all the reforms you're doing. We talk about you all the time. Your kindness is known everywhere. We're always talking about it. He's lying. This is the first sin. What? Couldn't he have been a Roman himself, though, Tertullus? He's speaking on behalf of the Jews. Okay. The Jews are his clients. Okay. So Tertullus here is, is flattering him. And why do you think he would be flattering this person? To win favor. To win favor. Why do you think he'd be trying to win favor? Instead of just presenting the evidence. Let me give you the question in a different way, then you can try it. Instead of just presenting the evidence... Why do you think he's emphasizing this flattery instead of evidence? Because then, um, because then he, then um, the man and that they're lying to will probably be on their side and probably help them win. Right. And why would it be important to have someone on your side instead of just presenting evidence that cannot be refuted? Especially because, someone so high up. Yeah, because that man has such authority that he can just make that man go to prison. Well, he has authority either way. So he's trying to convince this person, and what I'm saying is, if you just have strong evidence, couldn't you just present that evidence, and that would be enough for this person to make the right decision? You already know that the person's corrupt. Well, they didn't have strong evidence. That's it. That's it. Or also that they could use it so if they lose, that could be a really big deal. They didn't have evidence. He said it yeah. <laughs> you're right that you would maybe do flattery for a wicked person to get them to do either way, but what you're saying is true. In this case, we'll see next week when Paul gives his defense that there is no evidence for the things they're going to bring against this guy. And this lawyer knows that, that there's not a lot of evidence he can bring. So he's going to try to flatter this guy, flatter him into being on their side, so that even despite not having good evidence, he might still be motivated because of some now connection he has with this guy and this group of guys. Yeah, right. So, it's flattery. And the Bible has a lot to say about flattery. Here's some examples. And this is the first sin we're looking at. The sin of flattery. Um, I'm just going to read these. If you want to write them down, you can look at my notes afterwards, alright? Psalm 12, verses 2-4, through four, talking about the, the ungodly. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things. Proverbs 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hates those that it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. 
We never came with flattering speech, Paul said, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. <clears throat> so, Paul says, we didn't come to you trying to flatter you. We just spoke what was. So, beware of flattery. Flattery can come in the form of words and also in actions. Someone might come into your life with flattering words, immediately making you feel like there's this strong connection, like they know you way better than they actually do, saying all sorts of nice things about you and they barely even know you yet. Be careful of that. Or they might act really close to you like way too soon, and you might feel like there's a strong connection, and you find out they want something from you pretty quickly. And that's, by the way, what these people have down so well at the mall, the, those center booth people. Like, how, how do you make a connection in five seconds to where you're going to buy whatever they want you to buy in, like, five seconds? And it's like, hey, how's it going? Oh, hey, can, can I ask you a question real quick? Hey, do you have the time? Now that I've got you here, buy this thing you don't need. And you're like, oh, but we have this connection now. They're so good at that, right? Beware of flattery. It's the sin of flattery. Um, and that, and we, we see it a lot. Especially when you can keep track of your notes. Anyway, so, but the question is, alright, so, but aren't we supposed to talk nice to people? So what's the difference between flattery and just talking nice to people? Just, that's okay. Yes. Okay, yes? Um, the difference is because just being nice is meaning be, being kind to someone because you want to be kind. But flattery is about only being nice to, be, to someone so that you can use them to your own to like to your own. Yeah. But how do you know if someone's being nice to you because they want something from you versus they're just wanting to be your friend? Don't answer. Just think. These are rhetorical questions now. Got it? That means don't answer every one of them. This big difference between flattery and cordiality. I'm going to read some verses and I want to see if you see the difference. So you read some verses about flattery. Okay. And now we're going to read some verses about how we should talk to people. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, which means preserve, like to preserve the person, to, to help the person, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. 1 Peter 3, 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, with gentleness and reverence. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, who are members of one another. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So the difference between flattery and how we should talk to people, being cordial. After hearing both sides of that, I think we get the sense of speak with grace, speak with kindness, speak in ways to encourage people, but speak the truth. Right? And, and do it out of love and not out of you're wanting something from somebody. So Aiden was right about the, the whole motive behind it. You're right. But the motive is just to be kind, just to love, just to speak truth, not because you want something out of them. And this is something that I dealt with once. I, I had a colleague of mine and he kind of reported to me, and we were on a lot of the same emails together. And he would always begin an email by just writing. He would never address the person. And so imagine a client says, hey, um, what do you think about doing this change? Or hey, hey, so-and-so, um, I like what you've done on the site. I'm just wondering, though, 
what about adding this thing here? Sincerely, your, your client. And this colleague might say, no, that cannot be done because of this. And it came across very cold and very abrupt and very abrasive. And I'm trying to say, look, just begin by saying hi first. Just like say, hey, nice to hear from you. Or I see why you're wanting that, but here's why that wouldn't work. I thought of that too, something. And he would say, no, I'm not going to do it unless it's a, from the top of the company down, enforce this, but I'm not going to do it. So I got the company to have an official email policy. And it was like, step number one, begin by addressing who you're talking to. Step number two, say something nice before you say anything else, like nice to hear from you or good idea or ha-ha if it was a joke, whatever, just, you know, before you challenge, just something. And he said to me in response, I won't do it because that's manipulation. Being kind like that is psychologically manipulating them into what I want. And what he was thinking of was flattery. And he couldn't get the difference between flattery and just being like generally a nice person. But here we see the difference, right? Here's the tools lying to this person, saying all sorts of crazy things just to get them to, to like be on the same side versus what the Bible says, like speak with grace always, speak with gentleness, with reverence, not with unwholesome words, give grace to all who hear, build people up. The only reason that would be manipula uh, manipulative is if you didn't feel those things. And if you don't feel those things, you got bigger problems. If you can't speak nice words because you don't feel nice things about people, deal with that. Because as a Christian, we're supposed to be able to say nice things and be nice to one another. You don't want to be tricked into buying a product because the person made you feel like there was some bond you had between you. And so, like, there are all sorts of applications for this, right? Like, between friends, like, if you have a kind of friend that they only come around and they need something, and, but when they, they, like, hey, they check in, hey, how you doing, man? Like, I've been thinking so much about you, and, like, oh, you're so awesome, and you're so good all this. By the way, hey, you got some extra cash I could borrow real quick? Like, and then they, they don't hear from them again for, like, months until the next time they need something. Family can be that way, too. You don't want to enable a friend or a family that only comes around when they have needs and they don't hear from them again. And in the workplace, if you're put in the position of authority, you don't want to, like, make the wrong decision regarding an employee because they've tricked you into thinking that there's, like, some bond between you guys. And then at the first chance they get, they're, like, backstabbing you and, and getting above you, and they were just using you the whole time. So just, like, be wary is all I want to say about that. Like, don't be mistrusting of people. Just be wary. People that you don't know that well are coming into your life and they're saying all sorts of really nice things or they're acting like way too close to you, way too quickly, where you're like, what is going on here? Ask God for wisdom and be careful how quick you are to help them with things because they might just be using you. Again, but still, don't be mean to someone who's nice to you. Like, still speak with grace and gentleness and reverence, but just be aware that this kind of thing exists. Flattery exists. So the sin was flattery, and instead, the way we're supposed to be instead of flattery is seasoned with grace, gentleness, reverence, edifying one another, giving grace to one another, loving one another. Okay. The next thing we're going to look at, starting in verse 5, Tertullus is still speaking, and he says, We have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he's still lying here, which we'll get into next week. But here, he calls it the sect of the Nazarenes. 
Now, believers called themselves Christians by this point. That began in Antioch. By this point, it meant little Christian. It kind of became, it was like a joke at first, but they took it on like, yeah, that's a good name. We're, we're Christians. Um, they, and they would call the movement the way. But among the Jews and the Romans and all that, they called it the sect of the Nazarenes. And there's a couple reasons why they do that. Number one, Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth, but he did grow up in Nazareth. So he was, he was actually from Nazareth. And oftentimes when referring to a movement, they would refer to it as, as the place where the person grew up that where it started. The same thing happened with different people in Christ. Time had these kind of little revolts and movements. They, they would refer to the person and the place he was from. So that's one reason. But the other reason, I think, is because it was a way to mock Jesus. Because Nazareth was not a respected place. We saw back in John 1 verse 46, when one disciple says, Hey, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. The other guy says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like they couldn't believe that he came from there because it was like a bad place to be from. Um, and so and we also saw that one time Jesus was interacting with, with this kind of demonic presence who said in Luke 4, 34, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth. Like kind of like mocking of Nazareth. And so um, that might be why here Tertullus says that, thinking that by telling Felix that this whole thing started in Nazareth, to kind of like be like, do you really, like this is like a Nazareth thing, like just, uh, you know, Nazareth. So that could be why. <laughs> now the apostles weren't ashamed of it, which is kind of cool. Um, in Acts 10, 38, the apostles, when they're preaching, they did say, Jesus of Nazareth, they weren't at all ashamed of him. <coughs> but this is the sin of mockery. That's the second sin I want to point out. There's the sin of mockery, where you try to say something about somebody else, which puts you in a better light. Whether it's you and a friend who are kind of mocking somebody else, because they'll, they'll never know, you know. Um, there's this, this kind of sin of, of making fun of. So I think that might be what's happening here. Either way, the instead for us is let speech always be with grace, gentleness, reverence. The same thing as the last point, basically. It's like, look, love one another. As Christians, don't talk bad about each other, don't mock each other. The sin of mockery. What are you laughing at? Don't put stuff on your mother's head when she's driving. <laughs> that was not mockery. That was a show of kindness that you will that not understand making, until later. That was making fun of mom. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to look a little bit out of the sin called the sin of false testimony. Starting in verse 6, which is kind of, it's already begun, but he's still kind of going through these lies. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Now, if you use a King James Version Bible, you might not notice this. But if you use like an NIV or an ESV or NASB or whatever, you might notice that in verse 6, these, this bracket begins and it kind of ends at verse 8, those brackets. Those are there because when the King James Version was written using the best manuscripts they had at the time, that part of the text was there. But since the King James was written, we found earlier texts where it's not there. And so if you think about how that could happen. The earliest texts we have don't have this part. It's happened a few places in Scripture where 
Now we have older texts. We find that it might be the editors, when they were copying this down, might have added a note in the margin that might be based on things they had heard that are, in fact, true, but weren't in the original, and over time they were added. Either way, that part isn't in the oldest documents. It's not like it's a really big deal. The goodness is that whenever this has happened, it doesn't really take away from any kind of like serious doctrine. Um, nothing is said in those bracket parts that you can't already see in Scripture otherwise. The funny thing here is that if it is true, look what they're saying. We wanted to judge him according to our law. What was their law? How did they want to judge him? By beating him ruthlessly in the streets with no court. That was their idea of judging him by our law. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, but Lysias, the commander, came along, and then we couldn't. So we don't know if it's really there in the text or not. But notice here that in the last verse, verse 9, the Jews also join in the attack. So I'll say two things about that. Number one, the Jews might think, if we agree with Tetralus here with this thing, that should be enough to condemn Paul. Why? Because they have these verses in their law that say things like this. Deuteronomy 17.6 On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Same thing, Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which is committed. On the evidence of two or three, a matter shall be confirmed. So is that really enough always though? I mean, don't we have many examples in the Bible where groups come together and lie about, like, Jesus or the apostles? Didn't they do that with Jesus? They all came together as a group, more than one person falsely accusing Jesus. And here they're doing the same thing here. They're falsely accusing Paul, but in a group. Should that always be enough? Is that what the Bible's saying? That is, as long as two or three are saying it, believe it no matter what. Is that what it's saying? He was just using it to, to get his point across because he knew that this is something that the Jews believe very fondly. Like he was just using that point for himself for, to gain credibility. Do you think Tertullus was asking the Jews to defend his point to gain credibility? Is that, yeah. Okay, yes. right, right. Okay, sure. Um, and the Jews, like I'm saying, he might have counseled knowing their law and he might have said, look, as a lawyer, here's what your law says. So if you agree with me, that might be enough. Maybe we'll win him over with that. But is it enough? That's the question. Is that what the Old Testament is saying? Should it be enough whenever two people say something that you just believe it no matter what? No, and here's why. If you look at those verses, Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.15, both of them are contrasting two different things. They're basically saying, if one person condemns somebody to die, don't take their word for it. Take two or three witnesses. He's just kind of saying, don't just take one person's word for it. They're talking about trials where punishment by death is being considered, and in both cases, they're contrasting with it being like, don't just have a single witness. There better be more than one. That doesn't mean, though, you, you have to discard all the evidence. Like, if, if it's known, this guy was out of town, there's no way he could have done this thing, but three guys say he did it. Okay, we'll just kill him. No, you still consider evidence, obviously. But I think that's what they were getting at, was let's just join together and say this thing, and maybe that'll convince this guy. So... The sin here is the sin of false testimony. You might find a couple of people that get together that will be willing to lie together to accomplish something. That's the sin of false testimony that we should be avoiding as Christians. Don't lie 
on behalf of somebody else because they really need you to lie for them to say they were somewhere else so they won't get in trouble for whatever. Don't, don't get involved in that kind of false testimony. And don't speak lies. It's never more important. Like, if, if you're the kind of person that's tempted to, to not say the truth because you want to impress somebody, you should want to impress God more than anybody else. And God knows when you're lying. And you'll actually make more long-term friends. I had a friend of mine that was, for years, he was just this, this complete, this compulsive liar. And it became so hard to be his friend because I kept trying and trying and trying. And to earn his trust, to let him know like I accepted him the way he was anyway... And he would just constantly still lie, like saying things like, oh yeah, by the way, I met Jewel in the guitar center and uh, she heard me playing this song and she asked if you use it on her album, so I wrote that song on her album. I was like, dude, you didn't meet Jewel at guitar center, like this, that kind of thing, right? He was just, like he just come up with stuff all the time. It's like, man, I accept you anyway, like you're my friend, stop lying to me. So lay aside falsehood and the instead, you know, the instead, so don't bear false testimony, the instead is speak the truth. Like we read earlier, the same verses from earlier. Speak the truth. What God wants us to do is share the truth. Talk the truth. Don't try to impress people with lies. The final sin we're looking at this morning is the sin of the heart. Looking at the same verses, notice how they joined together in the attack. In verse 9, the Jews joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. It reminds me of this progression of sin that's talked about in Romans. In Romans, it's talking about Romans 1, like they kind of knew that God existed and they chose to not follow Him. Because of that, their hearts and their minds were darkened, so God gave them over to this thing. And they began sinning and, and doing all sorts of strange things, and it got worse and worse and worse. And then it says towards the end of Romans 1, and not only that, but they approved of those who did those things. They approved heartily. They, they gave their hearty approval of those things. And so you get a sense here that as Tertullus is, is presenting these lies... To, to Felix, that these Jews are joining in it, like giving hearty approval to these things. And at the heart of all of this, these leaders know that these things aren't true. The Jews know it. The council that's there knows it. Tertullus knows it. They know these things aren't true. They've agreed together to lie about it. And as the lawyer gives this false testimony, lying and breaking the Jewish law, breaking one of the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't lie, they're disobeying God. The Jews join in the attack and they're basically approving of it. It's almost as if they take courage as he leads on and get them on and they get on board with him. And this is kind of the mob mentality thing. But what I wanted to look at as far as that this morning is that we have to carefully consider what kind of things we approve of. Um, because we might say we believe certain things and act. Like we believe certain things, but then, for example, you might watch a movie where the main storyline is something you would never want to do as a Christian. But because of the protagonist and because of the backstory, you're kind of rooting for them anyway. And then by the end, of, like you're happy when they do it, you know? Like a typical example, like a story of like a, a husband and wife, but they're miserable in their marriage, and she's so mean anyway. And this guy meets this other girl, and like they have this connection, and they like really connect, but it's sad because he wants to stay faithful as well. And like by the end, you're kind of like like you're hoping they end their marriage, and you're hoping this thing works out. You're like giving hearty approval to divorce and remarriage when the Bible's like like don't you know love your wife till the end kind of thing. You find yourself heartily approving, or like my example. Okay, so here's a a self-condemning example: the Italian Job. I love the Italian Job. That movie's Mark Wahlberg. I love it. 
but the maze, like, they're, they're thieves, though, like, you know? And, and I, I shouldn't be stealing, thou shalt not steal, right? And yet, but I'm watching that, and I'm like, yeah, they got away! And then that guy, oh no, he backstabbed them, so now they're going to come against him, and hey, she punched him, yeah! But, like, in real life, though, Christians shouldn't act that way. And I probably, in, in real life, going to a church, getting counsel from my pastor, you, he advised me to handle that differently than how they handle it. But somehow in that story, I end up giving a hearty approval to that. And so just be, be careful because the heart is where things begin. Matthew 15, verse 18 says, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And in 1 John 3.15 it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Because if, you, if it happens here first, eventually the things that we're approving of in our heart become how we are on the outside. So we have to be careful about that. And so these Jews here, they're, they're watching this lawyer do his job, present the the case as best he can with no evidence, trying to, you know, give flattery to this guy and all this stuff. And they're giving hearty approval, like, yeah, no, that's right, yeah, no, he did say that, no, yeah, that did happen. They're giving hearty approval of this thing, they're, they're giving their hearts over to this thing, and it's all a lie. So sin of the heart, that was the fourth one, sins of the heart. Be careful of things that we approve of. Instead, what's the instead for that? Ephesians 5, verse 11, having nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. Any one of those Jews present could have said, you know what, this is all a lie. We shouldn't be doing this. If we have no evidence against Paul, we can't be doing this. It's against our own Ten Commandments. We can't do this. But they did it. And that's what we should be doing instead. Instead of allowing our heart to approve of things we know are wrong, we should be exposing those things, bringing them to the light, and saying, I'm not going to follow along with this sin. I can't approve of this. Okay, so I'll just summarize to conclude. Number one, the sin of flattery. Number two, the sin of mockery. Number three, the sin of false testimony. Number four, the sin of the heart. And instead, let speech be always with grace, gentleness, reverence, edifying and giving grace to one another, lay aside falsehood, speak the truth, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for this text. I pray you'd help us to have learned from these things that what you're wanting out of us, God, you're wanting our heart. You're not wanting our actions. You're not wanting our, our speech. You're wanting our hearts. You want us to actually be changed on the inside. That's why in the Old Testament you you got to a point where you told the Jews, I'm so weary of your sacrifices. I'm so weary of your long prayers. I'm so weary of this stuff. I just want your heart. So help us this morning to give you our heart, to actually let you, let you change us from the inside. And help us also be honest with you, because you, you know where we're at. You know how we feel. You know how we think. And one of the best um, honors we can give to you is to say, God, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm actually thinking this is what I'm actually feeling. This is what I'm actually going through. Despite the lip service, despite my behavior, this is what I'm actually, this is where I'm at. And help me where I'm at. Help me to change. If you want me to change, if you want me to have different thoughts, different feelings, help me with that. But this is where I am. Help us to be honest with you. Yes, same to Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.